Amen. So, good stuff. That uh, idea of tasting and seeing that God is good, it's all through Scripture. And the psalmist says it, that you can actually experience him with your senses. And normally we would do that with uh, worship and music at this point in the service, but today is a little bit different. And it's not different on purpose. You know, we'd like to maybe pretend like we planned this, but we didn't. Um, I got a text from Josh uh, this morning about 4 o'clock. And uh, I, believe it or not, I happen to be awake. And, uh, and he said, uh, it said, bro, this is not good. I've been up all night and, uh, and I've got a fever now. Of, uh, I think it was 101 at the time. And, you know, a fever these days, you know, it's not a good thing. It generally means one, one thing. Um, I mean, we haven't had a, a flu season, literally almost zero flu in the area. And so he said, uh, he, the bad news is that he was around the entire worship team all Thursday evening. And, uh, and our tech team, which, uh, you know, we've swapped out a few, and Kim Brock was brave enough to say, you know what, COVID ain't going to bother me, so she just showed up. <clears throat> and so, so Josh and the worship team, and then when we got down to about our seventh or eight option B, uh, you know, we said, you know, we're just going to preach and have a little communion. And so I hope that's sufficient for you. I hope it's okay for you. Uh, but uh, I hope that you'll be praying for Josh and, uh, and that whatever uh, interactions he's had, you know, through this week are uh, ineffectual in terms of transmitting anything you know, nasty or gnarly. And so um, that's our hope and that's our prayer. It's a scary thing. You know, the, um, the questions that are out there and the fears that are associated with the virus or the vaccine or any number of things are real. And the reason they're real is because we know people who have gone through all kinds of trials or difficulties or illness or people who have lost loved ones or friends and because of that, the question that we have in the back of our minds is, well, what about me? And, and, and what do I need to be concerned about? And what, what if it affects me or somebody that I love dearly? And so those fears are real and they're present. And all of this, of course, affects every relationship we have, whether we're wearing a mask and we can't tell whether somebody's smiling or angry with us, or we're staying socially distant and so we find ourselves stuck and isolated away from people. Paul Sard was a part of a larger group covenant experience where they unveiled some surveys from a Google group that had um, actually done some surveying regarding emotional intelligence over the last 12 to 14 months. And so they surveyed many companies, a lot of employees, thousands of people, and they had pre-COVID uh, emotional intelligence ratings and they had post-COVID. And what's interesting about it, he sent me some of the graphics and gave me some of the information about it. Emotional intelligence measures your ability to, you know, handle your emotions, to control your anger, for example, to understand who you are in light of somebody else, to have empathy, to uh, engage in what we would call impulse control when you walk by the dessert, you know, or when you feel this anger rise up at another driver. Impulse control is that thing that enables you to know what you would choose if you had free reign, but then you make another choice that's more thoughtful or beneficial or kind. And almost every area of emotional intelligence for all these employees, a variety of companies across the board, 
dropped significantly during the pandemic. It means that we find ourselves in a stressful situation. And it's interesting because you get up, maybe you have your day, you do your thing, you get to work from home, you're in your pajamas, maybe things are fine, maybe your life hasn't changed very much. And that's true for a lot of Americans who haven't been either directly affected or directly impacted by the pandemic or economic issues. But somehow the stress has reached you. Somehow the uncertainty has reached you. And it has affected every relationship you have. And so we see the divorce rate climbing during the pandemic. Divorce lawyers are quite busy during the pandemic. We see this emotional intelligence affecting quality of life in almost every possible way. We're two weeks from wrapping up this series And near the end of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul is going to talk about relationships. And he's going to get kind of nitty-gritty. He gets kind of detailed. I'm going to give you a bigger picture. And this weekend and next Sunday, as we wrap it up, my hope, my hope is that we'll be able to take some of the things that he's provided, essentials that we've packed, toothbrushes that we need for our journey, things that we would never want to leave home without, and these relationship ideas that he communicates in the last two chapters of Ephesians might kind of work their way into our hearts and help us find some peace that we haven't had over the last 12 to 14 months. We knew at some point that Josh or somebody's going to get sick. We just thought it would happen a year ago, you know, almost last March. But we got through, you know, the summer, we got through the fall. And who would have guessed that we would still be dealing with this now? And we're just hoping that he's probably out for another week or so. Who knows? Um, I mean, by Wednesday, I'll say rub some dirt on it and get back in the office, Josh. But, um, you know, who knows that, you know, I I didn't, I won't catch it from him and and I'll be out next week or whatever, which is fine because he can sing and preach. I just can't sing. And so as we watch this thing endure, we have to take care of business in our own heart and with our own relationships that matter most. We cannot wait for the trouble or the difficulty or whatever it is to expire. We have to tend to the things that will help us be followers of Jesus that represent his love well wherever we go. And Ephesians will help us do that. Ancient letter, but so applicable for today. There was a verse in our passage last week that I I want you to catch before we go any further today. And it says this, this was at the end of our passage last week and it helps us launch into where we're headed today. Um, be, be very careful then how you live. Goodness, I can't imagine more appropriate words than for the time that we're in right now. Be, be very careful how you live, how you relate to people, how you engage with folks, how you speak and how you act and how you think and what's in your heart and the values that you're trying to uphold in your life. Be very, very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he says this, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Well, it was true then, it's true now. This phrase, making the most of every opportunity, it, it, I think, speaks to a place in our American sort of industrial, pull yourself up by your bootstraps place in our heart that isn't very healthy and not a very good phrase for us to use or even think about. And it's not even a great translation of what Paul is saying. I mean, it's, it's one way to say it, but I like 
the other translations better when it says redeeming the time. In fact, they would take this whole phrase, making the most of every opportunity, and instead replace it with just these three words. Here's what I want you to do. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Redeeming the time. Why? Because the days are evil. In the Greek language, there are two words for time. We say time in English, but the two words in Greek mean very different things. The first word that comes to mind is the word chronos, and it's where you get, and we, we get the idea of time marching on, second by second, minute by minute. It's why your watch might be called a chronograph. It, it actually marks the second by second passage of time, chronograph. That's not the word that Paul uses in this, in this sentence. Making the most of every opportunity, well, redeeming the time. The word he uses is the Greek word kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. And kairos is a different sense of time. When you say to your spouse, do you remember those times when? And whatever that memory is for you. Remember when we didn't have money to do this? Or remember when we had to deal with that unemployment thing? Remember when we went on that trip and we saw and we experienced? you remember those times? And that's the word kairos. If you were going to say, hey, don't be late. Don't forget what time it is. That's chronos. But the word kairos refers to a season, a period, an, an epic even. And so Paul says... Look, you need to be careful how you live. And you're given this resource of time, this season, whatever it is, whatever the season is. And this season, well, the days are evil, so it must be redeemed. It must be brought back into goodness. And so it's your job to redeem it. And this happens in the context of relationships. What do you mean to somebody else? How have you treated others? How have they treated you? Are you enjoying a sense of other-centered living? Are you trying to just accomplish what you want to accomplish? What's your life about? This bigger picture idea of time and purpose and relationships, that's exactly what Paul had in mind when he says, here's what we want to do. We want to redeem the time. And so now he's going to talk about relationships. And all of the relationships we have are about redeeming the time. And so this, this next passage of Paul's that he gets into, Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9, this whole section before we get to the armor of God and all of that, which will be next week, and we'll talk about how it ties in. He's going to talk about every relationship we've got and really the significant ones. He doesn't really get into friendships or that sort of thing, but he's going to talk about relationships between husbands and wives and children and servants and managers. In fact, if you looked at this list and thought about the, the scope of your relationships and where your life is centered around and what makes up your connections with other people, this is about 90% of them, isn't it? The people you spend time with, the people in your family, if you're married, whoever you're married to, the kids that you have, and you have dads, you have moms. When we say servants, well, the Greek word there really just means somebody who works for somebody else. 
Some translations say slave, but really servant's a better translation. And then there's this group of people that are in charge of the people that work for them, and we'll call them managers. In Ephesians, Paul uses the word master, but that doesn't really translate to our culture very well. But it's the same idea. And so my guess is this, that your work and your family, that the, the friction that you have felt over the last 10, 12 months, most all of that friction or difficulty, tension, discontentment, frustration, has centered around these relationships. People you live with, people you work with. Maybe some friends, maybe some folks that you have more close relationship with, some folks that you're doing life with, but odds are this is the majority of it. And so Paul spends several verses, into chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6, talking about these relationships. Now, if you were to count the number of verses he gives to these verses, to, to these topics and these relationships, then you would notice pretty quickly that most of them are reserved for husbands and dads. I don't know. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that's what it is. There's a couple for wives. There's a few for children. There's a few here and a few here. But most of it seems to be focused here. Now, here's what's interesting when you read this passage and you think about all of the things that it says about these relationships and how they work. You know some of the content just by even seeing these topics and seeing maybe where the reference is. Almost all of the content in this passage about these relationships have to do with one very simple thing, a struggle for power, control, and authority. So if I were to say to you, well, it says in Ephesians, somewhere in this passage, wives, what's the next word? Say it again. Say it like you mean it. That's what I thought. That's it. Wives, submit. Submit to who? Online, you can say it too. You can get slapped maybe, but submit to who? Your husbands. That's right. And then it goes on to talk about how husbands should treat their wives and then how children should relate to their parents and how servants should relate to their managers. Now, if you look closely and you think about this from a big picture point of view, which is really important if we're going to get where we need to go today, then you know this, that all of these relationships have something in common. Somebody has power, control, or authority over somebody else. Servants and masters. With Paul's own words, husbands and wives, children, dads and children. And Paul is going to address in this passage the struggle for power, control, and authority. And it's a really big deal. And this is my guess. Every place of friction you've had has something to do with this. Every frustration that you have has something to do with this, whether you're at work or at home. My guess is when it comes to your children, all of this is connected and related. When my boys were growing up, Austin and Carter, when they were young, in the single digits of their ages, I had some ideas in mind about the kind of young men they would become. And I wanted to be able to help them go to those places I wanted them to be thoughtful, respectful, mannerly, obedient. 
responsible. I wanted them to be clean, fastidious, all kinds of words. I had in hope and hopes of them. And when Carter was a little tiny baby and just laid there and didn't move, every one of those dreams was intact. Every one of those ideas of who Carter would become was intact. And I knew exactly how we were going to get from A to B. And then he rolled over and then he put his knees to the carpet and then he began to walk and I began to say no. And he didn't even know the word for yes, but he found a way to communicate to me yes when I said no. And this struggle for what? Power and control and authority began. When that struggle began, I had the upper hand, didn't I? In a thousand ways. I was smarter, I was bigger, I was stronger. I knew more strategies than he did, but he had this ability to learn very quickly. And so he adapted. Why? Well, he is also, like me, made in God's image, and he has a will and a desire and a plan for his own life, even if it's just getting what's on the coffee table into his little Grimy mutts, right? These little hands, these guys, he's going to get it and breakable or not, he doesn't care. And so then it began, the struggle. And it started then and it continued. What's still going on (laughs) today? This is what you want too when you get a new job. When you get a new job, the thing you're most nervous about is your boss. Is your boss going to give you the freedom to do what you want to do? Or is he going to be a, what, micromanager, right? Which means essentially ensure that your work product is worth getting paid for. Nobody wants that. But most bosses or CEOs want to be sure that things are moving in the right direction. And what is the tension that you feel? Well, it's a a struggle for power, control, and authority. So you meet the love of your life and then you get married. And then you're trying to figure out how are things going to work in our relationship? What's the question? Who's in charge? How do we make decisions? What if what you want isn't what what I want? Are we going to go right? Are we going to go left? What is it a struggle for? It's a struggle for power and control and authority. Always. Always. When Don and I first got married, never forget it. You know, we've been married maybe a few weeks. She got done with dinner. We were wrapping up put a few dishes over by the sink and I did what I thought I could do. Just went right from the little kitchen area to our little couch. It was a walk of, I think, about eight feet in that little house. It's about 900 square feet. And turned the TV on and I was ready to relax. And I heard a clink and a clank and I heard the water running and I thought, well, good, the kitchen's going to get clean. And after a few minutes, I heard a louder clink and a louder clack and a couple grunts and a big heavy sigh and finally she came in and turned the TV off and said in my family the men always left after the meal and did what you're doing now we're not going to do that together let's go clean the kitchen 
And I said, you know, in your dreams. No, I said, you bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, that sounds like a great idea to me. And it worked, it worked because I married a woman who has a strong sense of self and she understood what she wanted out of a marriage. And if given the chance, any of us will choose on a given day, not every day, but a little laziness over work. And if we have the opportunity, we'll allow somebody to work for us occasionally. And what that does is begin to establish, well, who is the servant and who is the manager? What are we talking about? Oh, we're talking about power and control and authority. And so Paul begins to address it in this whole passage. And this passage has been used and abused and used in ways that it was not intended to be used at all. Now, it's true. Scripture says that the word of God is a sword. But when the writer of Hebrews explains this, he says that that sword is to be used probably a better translation is scalpel, but it's a blade nonetheless. It's to be used on yourself to divide your heart, your thoughts, and your motives. It absolutely can be used as an offensive weapon. But many of us have used the word of God in a variety of ways as a weapon against other people, either to get what we want make them behave the way we think they should or change their life to match up the way we think it ought to look. Oh, what are we talking about? What? Power, control, and authority every time. So my guess is the friction that you've had over the last 12 months has a lot to do with these ideas and power and control and authority. And so when you have watched your own emotional intelligence kind of fall off the cliff, or your impulse control go out the window. It's what happens when you eat your feelings. When you have watched your inability to manage your anger or your sadness or your depression, it's because we want what we want and we don't have what we want and we don't know what to do with those feelings. The pandemic brought it in spades into our life. And we want to believe that we are autonomous, in control, and that we can make our own future, even if other people are in the way. And it's these relationships that matter the most. So, the question is, am I in control of my life? And the answer is almost unbearable, and it comes out in a thousand different ways. I was in line to get a pizza some time ago, Papa Murphy's, you know, take and bake, right? And in line, and three or four of us deep, person in front, they brought their pizza out, swiped their card, they got ready to pay, they're handing them the pizza. And as they handed them the pizza, they looked down at the pizza and it was not what they had ordered. And so a show began to commence. I was going to have dinner in a minute, now I just get the show first. Where are my pepperonis? Oh, Sir, you didn't order pepperonis. Oh, I, I know I did. I, I, I talked to, I don't know his name, but I talked to him. I ordered pepperonis. Well, we don't have that pizza ready. We, we can make it for you, but it's going to take a little while. There's a line, and we have call-in orders. And, and it went from about a normal 70 degrees in the room to about 90 very quickly. 
and the throwdown that commenced. Have you been in public and seen something like this? The throwdown that commenced was absolutely difficult to comprehend in relationship to the topping that goes on a pizza. As I watched, it's fun to watch, you know, it's a little awkward to watch. You start to feel a little uncomfortable and a little frictiony, you know, but then you realize nobody's looking at you. And so, you know, you just want to like get some popcorn and just sit there and watch this meltdown occur. You, you, you know what's happening has absolutely nothing to do with pizza, right? It has to do probably with this. What that means is that this individual hasn't come to terms with this control issue. And they're looking for power and control and authority. And their teenager or their wife or their boss or their direct reports in the office, they aren't playing ball with them. And they're not complying and doing what they said they would do or what you asked them to do, even if they didn't agree to it. And this issue of control comes spilling out in some sort of angry moment or sad moment or anxious moment. You pick your emotion that's your go-to deal. And when that happens, it comes out all over somebody else who didn't put the pepperonis on your pizza. This individual didn't get out of the car and kiss his wife and said, you know, honey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get a piece. And she said, oh, I can't. Thank you for getting out of the car and getting this. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me in the world. That's not the nature of his relationships and his family, is it? Something's askew. And he'll find control. This isn't new. It's been around forever. In fact, this is what Nietzsche called it. He called it the will to power. Have you heard that? Do you remember that from psychology classes and philosophy classes in college, your intro classes? Here's what he said about it. And this is true for all of us. Nietzsche says it this way. Do you want a name for this world? He's not saying, do you want a name for this behavior? He's saying, you look at the world around you, look at the power structures, whether you're in church or an organization, doesn't matter, whether you're in a family or a HOA or a small office. Do you want a name for this world, a solution for all its riddles, a light for you to you best concealed, strongest, most intrepid, most midnightly men? In other words, somebody that has control over their life and can handle any kind of danger, this world is the, what? Will to power and nothing besides. And then he goes on to say this, and you yourselves are also this will to power and nothing besides. Well, we don't quote Nietzsche because we think he's right. He's wrong about a lot of things, smart about some things, We quote Nietzsche because he looks at the human race and he looks at the individuals in his life and he observes a behavior and he says this will to power exists because you, in fact, he wouldn't say it this way, we would, are made in God's image and you desire to create, you desire to connect, you desire to relate. And as Adam and Eve were in the garden, also made in God's image, maybe five minutes from the moment that God breathed his ruah, his breath into them, they found themselves wanting to claim something that wasn't theirs for themselves. We do the same. And for us, it's the desire to have control. And you and I both want it. Because we know that a life where we have control is more predictable It's better in our hopes and estimations. 
and we desire it almost more than anything else. And so, where's the friction for you in this will to power and to control? Let me ask it this way. You see this in your own life, maybe easier in the lives of others, but think about it from this perspective. What was the last big argument that you had? What was it about? Last time you had some serious friction with somebody else or a bunch of somebody else's, what was it about? And you'll notice if you're playing along, you're actually thinking about it and remembering that discussion, that it was about either the most ridiculous thing or the most important thing. It really didn't matter. But you dug in and you established your position and you squared up as if it was life or death because the will to power matters to you. So it might have been about the dishwasher, right? Because you know when you load the dishwasher properly, it cleans the dishes better. That's worth fighting over, isn't it? And then you know if you don't, it's got to be redone. Who wants to redo that, right? Or it could have been about the direction of the company because you know that if you don't move and, and shift, it's not going to be profitable. And it means the livelihood of you and your family and everybody else that works for the company. And so you square it up. The gospel addresses this. When we say gospel, what do we mean? Good news? Jesus came to address this issue. And he came to address this issue because it is the human condition's worst problem. I want what I don't have and I want to control my own destiny. It's what created the fall in the Garden of Eden and it's what causes me and you to fall every day. And it's what causes our relationships to be broken and not be able to move forward. It's the will to power. The gospel addresses it. And Paul does too. And when Paul addresses it, he's going to talk about the struggle for power and control and authority. And like we said, strangely, this passage has been used to abuse people right and left. Husbands love to quote it. Wives submit. They miss the part where it explains that, you know, well, it could be that if you love me like Jesus loves me, submission wouldn't even be a discussion. It could be that we misunderstand the nature of the passage. In fact, there are theologians that will argue and make a strong case for the fact that the word wives isn't even in the original manuscripts. There are two very old manuscripts where the word wives isn't even in that verse. So what do you do with that? Because we've built an entire patriarchy on that idea, haven't we? So what does it mean and how does it get lived out? And how do we address it? Let's hear from Jesus first. Now, if you're at home, you're watching online, you can see over here to my right, there's some communion elements. We'll take communion just a bit. There's not a more appropriate Sunday for us to be doing this and talking about all of this control and power and authority. And we'll do that here in just a few minutes once we kind of unpack the nature of this passage. So Jesus is near the end of his ministry and he's traveling with his disciples. They were on their way up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and the disciples were filled with awe. Jesus was a rabbi. He had some men that were following him. He had women too that were also disciples. And these people were hoping that Jesus would lead them to a place of freedom and liberation. In fact, Jesus said, I'm the truth and the truth will set you free. And they thought freedom might mean that they would be freed from the bondage of Rome's occupation in Jerusalem and greater Judea. That they would be a nation once again because God promised they would be a nation. 
And now they were a slave nation under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so they were following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. Things that he did up in his ministry and they knew that things would not go well when he got to Jerusalem, but they hoped that Jesus would prevail. And that the result would be that Jesus would establish a new kingdom and he would be king and Rome would be kicked out. Now, if that's the case, then they begin to wonder, at least two of them begin to wonder, if Jesus is king, who's like, you know, vice king, right? Who's next in charge? And so James and John got Jesus alone as they're walking on the way to Jerusalem and they had a little chat with him. You remember this story? And James and John said, hey, when we get up there and you kind of do your thing and you finally kick Rome out, can we sit at your right hand and on your left side? Can we be right beside you? Now, if Jesus says yes, then James and John are going to walk away and argue over who gets the right and who gets the left. Because when you want control or position or authority or power, this much is not enough. You want this much. I've got two people doing what I say, but there's three in my family that don't listen to a word that I say. So I need everybody on the same page. I want everybody in line. I want you to snap to it and take care of business. James and John are the same way. They're just a little sharper than the rest of the disciples who were just making their way down the road. Well, the other disciples hear what that conversation was about, and they were what? Indignant. They were indignant. Why? Why are they indignant? Come on, you see this happening all the time. In a company, right? Boss leaves, and then everybody's looking around, waiting for the right time. We need to go have a chat. I need to put my little two cents in. You know, I don't know who's going to replace John, but, you know, I've been, working, I've been here longer than anybody else. I don't know what you have in mind for the future. And this happens whether you're in high school and trying to figure out who's going to work this part or do that part or be a part of this organization or lead the student government. It happens in homes when the favorite child goes off to college. It happens in companies. We're going to jockey for position. And so they were indignant. James and John in charge of us, they can't make decisions. Clearly they're selfish looking out for themselves we can't have that I didn't know the job was open the right and left hand we hadn't even thought of that yet and so they're mad they're upset so Jesus calls them together and this is what he says now I want you to take everything you think you know about who is in charge about who has authority about who makes decisions and you can even set aside Ephesians if you want to, but just allow the words of Jesus to answer that question. So if you lead a company, you lead a team, you're a part of a family. What Jesus describes about hierarchy, control, and authority, these are your marching orders for every relationship you have. And if you choose to operate a different way, then you're choosing to go down a different path because you want something else, control, power, and authority. That's fine. Lots of people choose that and want that. Followers of Jesus always find themselves at a crossroads, though. And Jesus says this. So Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers in this world, he's talking about Caesar and Herod and everybody else. Rome's a prime example for them. Rulers in this world lord it over their people. That was true then. Is it true today? Of course it is. 
Of course it is. We like to believe that we live in a, you know, a, a free democracy, that, that politicians are the servants of the people. You and I have seen enough of Washington over the last year to know that it is true that rulers in this world lord it over their people. And officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Why? It's better for them. Who gets to sit on the couch while somebody else does the dishes? Whoever's in charge. Whoever can get away with it. The servant can't get away with it. Makes your life easier, doesn't it? Is somebody going to make decisions for you? Who's in charge? Where are we going to move? How do we raise the kids? All of these questions are at stake. So Jesus said, you know this, right? They lord it over them. This is how it works. There is a hierarchy of authority and power, and then those who have less authority and less power. He says, you know this, and then he says this. But among you it will be different. Say it with me. But among you it will be different. One more time. But among you it will be different. I can't even tell you how how painful it is to read that statement. I've been a part of churches all my life, and among us it is not different, is it? No, it's not. I've been a part of church organization, church politics, church hierarchy, church leadership. I've been a part of a Christian marriage. I've counseled people in Christian marriage, Walk with couples through all kinds of issues that are related to power and control and authority. And Jesus says, but among you it will be different. And it's not. And because it's not different, you and I deal with the issues of power and control and authority all the time. And the friction that it creates. Well, Jesus didn't intend for you to live that way. He says this. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your what? And whoever wants to be first among you must be the, what? Slave of everyone else. Jesus lived in a class society. There were classes of people. Servants and slaves were a part of a class. They had no rights. They had no authority. They had no control. They had no power. And Jesus looks at the men who think that he's about to overthrow Rome. And he says, I want you to be... A diakonos, I want you to be a servant. I want you to be a doulos. I want you to be a slave. Two very different words in the Greek culture. They don't mean the same things. They're pretty different. I mean, a, a servant could be somebody that's just a helper, but a slave is involuntary, voluntary. It really didn't matter. A slave of, they're a slave of who? Slave of who? What does he say? Who's your boss? Everyone. I, I can't even begin to comprehend the, the stark way these words slapped the disciples across the face. Can you? In fact, they ought to slap us across the face. The way we treat one another, the way we exercise our desire for power and control and authority, the way we take the words of Ephesians and use them to subjugate other people to what we want. It's unconscionable. In fact, it doesn't represent the words of Jesus at all. 
And when you take a look at the passage in Ephesians and you think about the relationships between all of these people, Paul addresses it too. And he's going to talk about these things in a very cultural way. In fact, Paul talks about slaves and Paul talks about what it means to submit. And we would never say today that slavery is appropriate, but we are sure glad to take some of these verses and use it to create a structure for our marriages that keeps somebody under our power or control or authority. And it's ungodly. It doesn't represent the whole scripture at all. And the result is subjugation. And Jesus came to reverse every bit of that. In fact, you and I both know historically that the Bible is used to justify all manner of embarrassing behavior. In the 1800s, some of our forefathers turned to the pages of Scripture to justify literal slavery. And when Paul begins this passage, he sets a tone and he answers every question that we've ever, that we've ever wondered about what all of these mean. What does it mean to have a struggle for power and control and authority? What does it mean for husbands and dads and wives and children? And some of it's really good and really makes sense and it really takes us down a path and it really gives us wisdom for operating. But he begins all of it by saying this. Let's say it together with me. You can say it with me. You ready? Because I'm about to start. You about to start? If you're online, say it, say it at home. I'm watching. Here we go. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Say it again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And for some reason, some folks go down one or two more verses and use it to justify how this verse doesn't apply to all genders or all people. But he begins this passage by saying, you are to be in submission to one another. And the reason you're in submission, it's not because it's the right thing to do. It's not because it's even the best thing to do. It's because it's what Jesus did. That's why. That's the only reason. This is how Jesus lived. And so out of reverence or a holy fear is probably a good translation of that Greek word, a holy fear that if Jesus can walk down this path, what's make, what makes us think we can't or don't need to or shouldn't? Whatever follows this verse this sets the tone and it is in agreement with everything else. We submit to one another. It means that I submit to Donna. It means that her hopes and dreams become so important to me that I shape my life after those and she submits to me. It means that I submit, I submit to my kids Listen close. If you have power and if you have position, and some of you do, it is to be used solely for the benefit of somebody else. It's the only holy and proper use for any power, for any position, for any authority. It is only be used to be given away. That's how power is used. Any other use of power is ungodly. Any other use of power is ungodly. You cannot help. You cannot serve. You cannot be kind to other people. 
from a position of superiority. Anything else is selfish. It's to be surrendered and given away. Here's a great example from Scripture, okay? Here's Proverbs 22.6. Maybe you know this. Maybe you've heard it all your life. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This was in my mind when I had all my goals for Carter when he was little. I'm going to train him up how? In the way he should go. How should he go? Well, I know how he should go. I know exactly how he should go. I can tell you everything that he needs to know about who he needs to become throughout his entire life. I have it all mapped out and planned out. It's my idea. It's a good one. I'm his dad. Who knows better? He's my genetic DNA. Train up a child. And this is my hope. If I train him up this way, when he's old, he will stay true to his faith and he will live it out. As it turns out, this is a complete misunderstanding of the verse. In fact, this this phrase here, the way he should go, is an archery term. And it means that an archer, it didn't have a you know, a, all the arrows that were created in a factory that were honed down and sanded down and made from a machine. So they were all a little bit different because they came from twigs and branches from a tree. And so an archer, when he was getting ready to shoot an arrow, he would pick up an arrow and he would look at the curve of the arrow and the bend of the arrow and he would aim it according to its bent. And so a better translation would be this. Aim your child in the way she is bent and they'll fly straight. What does that mean? It means an archer picks up an arrow and he submits to the arrow, right? Ever try to make your kids be something they aren't? How'd that go for you? So what does a parent do? They submit to the child. Oh, that involves a lot of listening, doesn't it? Involves a lot of attention. It involves you entering their world if you're going to train up a child according to their bent. We only had two. Who would imagine that they would have been night and day different? So I had to learn it all over again for the second one. This is what God means when he says through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, submit to one another out of reverence, out of holy fear. This is the idea he had in mind and so near the end of his life Jesus wanted to repeat this lesson to the disciples it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave this world and go to the father having loved his own who were in the world he was now going to love them to the end it's the last night before the crucifixion he's with his disciples in the upper room and so Jesus does something that they had never seen a leader do Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his, what? So what did Jesus have? All power. And so he lays it down. What did we say? The only good use for power is to give it away. He doesn't just do this with his disciples. Read the Gospel of John. He does it with Pilate too, the man who would take his life. And that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. And so this is what Jesus did. He got up from the meal He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet. Ah, he was a slave, a doulos, a servant, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he was finished, he looked at his disciples and he said, do you understand what I've done for you? 
do you understand what I've done? And they're, of course, dumbfounded. They haven't spoken the entire time, silence in the room. And Jesus says, you call me Lord, you call me teacher. And that's right, that's what I am. But what I've done for you, you will now do for each other. In fact, he says, look, I did this so you would remember. I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. If you're at home, gather your stuff so that we can take communion. Give you a moment right now as we watch this video together. We watched it during the pandemic. It prepared our hearts for communion before we actually take it together in this room. If you don't have communion, Cindy will be making her way around and she'll give it to you. It should be in front of you or near you. You can get your cup ready. We'll do it in unison like we've been in the habit of doing. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts while this plays. video concludes we have this bread in front of us it reminds us that Jesus gave us his body and he said this is my body it's broken for you so at home and in this room we are one body dispersed for the moment but we will come together again and so we take the bread and we eat it And in the same way, he held up the cup, this cup of Passover, containing in it the fruit of the vine. And he held it up in front of his friends. And he said, this is my blood. With this meal, Jesus establishes a new covenant. This covenant is his commitment to love you even when you don't follow through with your end of the deal. 
Thank God for his grace and his mercy, the gifts of God for the people of God. And so he says, take and drink. And so we do as we remember. And so this gift that Jesus gave it is for us. It is given to us that we would be redeemed. And so we, like God, have been given the task to redeem the time. You can redeem the time with every relationship you have if you serve the way Jesus served. If you lay down your authority and your position and your power, if you use all that you have, whatever those resources are, whether it is financial, energy, emotional, effort to serve other people. That doesn't mean you don't take care of yourself. It doesn't mean that you don't take time for yourself. It doesn't mean that you don't engage in the things that help you to become as healthy as you can be. It means all of that. But it means that love is the only thing that redeems. Agape love that Jesus displayed on the cross, selfless giving is the only thing that can redeem the time. So, Lord, we ask as we leave this place today that you would give us the courage to redeem the time by the way that we treat other people. And so, Lord, make us acutely aware this week when we are attempting to grab for our own, when we have a desire to control with power and authority or position. Help us to remember the words of Jesus. This shall be different among you. Help us to repent in the moment, lay it down, And do something that solidifies this truth in our lives that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Our desires to live this way fall on your grace when we don't. And know that your love is sufficient and that your grace is enough. For all of this, we give you thanks. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And we all say together, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.